morning. Good morning, those of you who are on Zoom. Those are kind words that Kevin started with, but you'll notice on the rare occasion that I preach, he sits kind of right here. So if things start going sideways, he can just tackle me and save you all. And it is also not, it's not past me that Byron's here too. So I guess if one of them needs to hold me down, I don't know, we'll see what happens. Y'all just give me a signal if you see him moving over there. All right, Parable of the Sower. <clears throat> Obviously, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, the leadoff hitter in the Gospels. And dead in the middle of his Gospel, we see these parables. That should get your attention. To say that the parables are central to Matthew's Gospel, in this case, is both literal and figurative. And Jesus didn't start off teaching in these parables. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, we've already seen Jesus tempted, Jesus teaching on the law, the Sermon on the Mount, healings, calming a storm, casting out demons. He's not been hiding. His ministry had been active. He had been out among the people. So why now this shift in the middle of this Gospel to parables? For Jews in Jesus' time, parables were familiar. The prophets would uh, teach in, in parables, and Jesus was fulfilling that prophet role, but so much more. So this style was familiar to them. It's good that the style was familiar because nothing else about what Jesus was made sense to them. He wasn't the Messiah they expected. He wasn't what Israel had been waiting for, what they thought they had been waiting for. He wasn't a triumphant Messiah, a political or military powerhouse. He wasn't building an immediate restoration to Israel in a blaze of glory. And these are all things that they were looking for. So he confused them, and the parables were a way for him to describe the kingdom of heaven in a different way. It still wouldn't be clear to everyone, but it would strike at the hearts of many. He was saying, I'm not the Messiah you expected, but the kingdom is here. Let me show you how it works. In our time, we have the benefit of understanding the Bible as a grand narrative. Particularly in the Anglican tradition, we see Genesis to Revelation as one long story of God, his people, a fallen world, and the restoration that he tries to bring, the way that he brings us back to himself, which is great. We see Jesus as the culmination of that narrative, the solution that we couldn't bring about on our own. So it's great that we know that, and it's great that we have that context, but that was 2,000 years ago. It's been a long time. Our context is different. It's hard for us to read the Bible through the lens of the people who were there. Their culture and language were different. Their experience and understanding of what was happening in front of them is different than the way that we experience and understand it in our time and in our culture with our backgrounds and in our language. It's complicated. As it turns out, I read neither Aramaic nor Greek. I barely read English. So I'm glad he gave me a parable to preach on today. All that said, Jesus' parables aren't just thin fables to simply convey a moral. These aren't just ways of trying to dumb down the gospel message. That's not what the parables are. The language describes something concrete, but the core is driving at something more abstract. There is depth and gravity in these stories that does more than just speak to the intellect. It's been written that in the parables, Jesus was playing us the music of the kingdom. We've all had experiences with music where you're engaged and captivated in a way that your intellect alone cannot explain. 
I can't describe every detail of the composition, but I get it, and what I get is real. In the original language, the parable of the sower also had a musicality to it, a cadence, a rhyme, and a rhythm that would have transcended just words on a page. This was a way of Jesus speaking to his people. The author James K.A. Smith explains that we aren't just brains on a stick. Coming to faith can't just be an intellectual endeavor. You can't only learn it. You have to catch it. It has to captivate your mind and heart and soul. And in his parables, Jesus has a way of communicating truth in a way that does just that. When you read or hear a parable, you have, I hope, an aha moment. I see you, Jesus. I get what you're doing there. That moment is not just in your brain. That snap where things come clear to you is not just an intellectual exercise. A shift occurs in the way that you understand and embrace the wisdom and concede to the teacher. These parables have an energy and a force that engage your mind and soul in a way that you need to come to faith. So let's look at the parable. The premise is simple. A person is sowing seeds. If you've ever planted grass, there is one gozillion seeds that will fit in your broadcast spreader, and you haul that out across your yard, and you bro broadcast them far and wide. Seeds everywhere. You figure with this many seeds, I can't help but have a lush yard in no time. <clears throat> but the seeds don't always end up in a place to flourish. In verse 4, if you have your Bible, Matthew 13, verse 4, as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and birds came and devoured them. So the way the, this section is written, you get the parable, then you get a section on explaining the parables, which is sort of where I started, uh, and then you come around to the explanation. So verse 18 explains verse 4. Uh, this describes folks who hear, the, who hear good news, but Satan snatches it away. Their hearts are hardened and the news of the restoration and reconciliation doesn't take root. This is sad. Uh, this is a reminder that even in this new world, even with Christ in front of them, not all will heed the call. Just, judgment still exists. In a way, the parables themselves illustrate this point. Jesus quotes verses from Isaiah in explaining why he uses parables. So in the section we skipped over, verse 14, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. The very parable that will help some to understand with their heart will also serve as a veil for those who are closed off. <clears throat> Next up in verse 5, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. This is the person that we might describe as a flash in the pan. Their immediate response to good news is exuberance and joy, but they establish no depth, no roots, no foundation. With a little time or difficulty, that lacking foundation reveals them, and they fall away. 
Ken Hansen was also a wise teacher who spoke in parables. His caution against this scenario was, be a steady pumper, not a big gusher. I still hear those words and a lot of the other ones frequently. The last failing seed is described in verse 7. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Verse 22 explains, this is the one who hears the word, but cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Let me read that again. This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So this person is distracted by the shiny things of the world, and those things keep them from the truth. Earlier, I referenced James K.A. Smith. He wrote a book called You Are What You Love that I happened to just finish this past week. It'd be a great study for a small group or a triad. In it, he asserts that people are worshiping beings. We're built for it. We can't help it. He says there's no such thing as an atheist. We are all worshiping something. For believers, this means that even though we know what to worship, we can become enthralled with other temptations and other things that pull us from it. He calls these false liturgies, incorrect habits that draw us from God and entangle us in other things. <clears throat> Our world overflows with dangerous habits, things to worship. Politics, celebrities, houses, cars, sports, drugs, alcohol, toys, you name it. If you're having a hard time finding an idol, pull out your phone. <clears throat> right in your pocket, you can find any number of social media outlets with curated depictions of a fictitious, a fictitious perfect life. People who make a living putting on a show for you to covet. I'm not saying that social media is inherently evil, nor are houses or cars or alcohol for that matter. But given the wrong priority, any of them can undo us. In fact, things that are inherently good can tear us down. Take our spouses and children. These things are intrinsically good, provided by a God who loves us, but they are not meant to be worshipped. If you put those good things in the wrong place, you hurt them and destroy you. Whether the liturgies we embrace are good or bad, they are not just things that we do, they do things to us. They are formative. We must be careful about what we are forming. Finally, we hear about seeds that flourish. Verse 8, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the person who hears the word and understands it. The person who is changed in mind and heart and soul the person who indeed bears good fruit and in abundance. As believers, this is our spot. This is where we want to be. And I think the first three examples of failure can serve as guardrails to protect us and examples to frame what this fourth flourishing example looks like. So I'll use uh, those three stumbling blocks uh, to, to frame these recommendations. I'm going to grab a sip. I knew the fourth strip of bacon was a bad idea, and I still did it.
I was really just giving Kevin a minute to be proud that I was finishing with three things. I'm going to make a good Baptist yet. The truth that is taken away was the first one. As a Christian, or even if you're not a Christian, but you're listening to this now, you've heard truth and you've been intrigued by it. Hopefully you've responded by accepting Christ and committing your life to him. If you haven't, I recommend it. Come on in. The water is fine. As you grow in your faith and read scripture and hear sound doctrine, believe it. When God reveals truth to you and you recognize it, hold it with both hands. Don't torture yourself by inventing ways to doubt or distract or deceive. When you see truth, embrace it, accept it, and cherish it. There's long-standing advice out there that says when someone shows you who they are, you should believe them. This is typically advice that is given when someone has mistreated or betrayed you. I would recommend that we can use it in reverse. Jesus repeatedly shows us who he is. You ought to believe him. Secondly, the seed with no root, the flash in the pan. At different points in my life, this one has terrified me. Those of you who know me well know that my life tends to run in cycles. I have times of very clear focus, uh, coupled with high energy and enthusiasm and motivation. I get lots of stuff done. I read a lot. I see connections in scripture and other things that I'm reading and other things that are happening in my life, and it's great. These are the times when I come to Andrea and say things like, I know we've got four little kids and you're building a very busy and successful real estate career, and I travel half the country for work, but I'm pretty sure right now is the perfect time to go get an MBA, and while I'm at it, pursue ordination. <clears throat> Sorry, babe. So you all can time out when that, <laughs> when that flourish happened. However, in between those flashes of inspiration, I tend to get valleys where I feel just the opposite. I'm tired, I'm distracted, I can't easily focus, and motivation does not come naturally. I, in these times, I hear a voice that tells me that I'm just a flash in the pan. I have no roots, I lack foundation, and I'm all talk. But then I'm reminded that God is no less God in my down times. He is still there, <clears throat> truth is still truth, and my future is still secure. The light is there. I'll soon be able to see it again. When I look down, my feet are still moving. I might not be sprinting anymore, but I'm still shuffling in the right direction. It's okay for me to take, to take advantage of the times of inspiration, but I need to moderate and be patient of times in its absence. If you struggle with low times like these, it is okay. It doesn't mean you lack roots. God is still there. Low times are temporary, and despair is not disbelief. Lean on him and keep shuffling forward until things get better. Be a steady pumper. The seed lost to the thorns was the third example. Those who become entangled with cares of the world and lies of riches. As Christians, we have the distinct advantage of knowing what is important and what has real value. Particularly in this tradition, we have healthy patterns, liturgies, that we use to help us stay well-grounded in truth. With God's help, we can lean into these patterns of worship and prayer and reading and fellowship that help us to thrive. 
We were created to enjoy God's incredible creation. So do that. Just keep things in their place so they don't corrupt. Don't let things of this world distract you from the greater gift that you've been given and from the truth that has been revealed to you. We don't need idols. There is a God who created you, who has always known and loved you, and who seeks your well-being and flourishing in every aspect of your life. He reveals himself through his son who died to save you and redeem the whole creation. That is the truth. Believe that, cling to that, love that, worship him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.